And when it came to, do we need to be the best at giving people confidence and trust that we are capturing their process as accurately as possible? And that was a resounding yes. And so, you know, when we were doing these mock-ups and prototypes, what we were trying to emphasize was that, you know, this was going to be almost like a paradigm shift in the way people create documentation, but it's going to be infinitely more delightful than anything that they do today. That really became the hook for us where people would experience the prototype, see what we were planning to build, and they'd say, oh my gosh, like, does that actually work? (laughs) And that's really good feedback to get. My name is Ken Babcock, founder and CEO of Tango. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Ken Babcock built the fastest and easiest way for you to create how-to guides in seconds. All this and more on Code Story. Ken Babcock grew up outside of Buffalo and as such is a big Bills fan. He attended Cornell and has spent time in New York City, San Francisco, and now Chicago. He's a family man with an 11-month-old and loves to ski. His favorite mountain was Tahoe, specifically Palisades, where he mentioned spending many hours on the slopes. He also mentions that his busy life of a startup and family is a dangerous cocktail, but one that is worth drinking. Back in 2019, he and his current co-founders met each other at Harvard Business School. After digging into team performance, they started asking questions around the barriers to increasing team performance, specifically in replicating high performers. They dialed into process replication and started down the road to build a tool to make this not only possible, but easy. This is the creation story of Tango. So Tango, let's see, we started, let's go all the way back to 2019, which isn't that long ago, but it feels a lot, it feels a lot longer. I met my co-founders, Brian and Dan, we were at, we were at Harvard Business School. A buddy of mine said, Hey, you got to meet Dan. Like he's one of my, you know, one of my close friends from growing up. And then, you know, Dan is like, Oh, you got to meet Brian. I think he's actually in your section. And so the three of us met up, I think the first day of school, we realized not only did we get along, but we were all there to do something entrepreneurial. And so we started talking through ideas, things that we cared about, our careers prior to that. Um, and what really emerged was a, just a passion for team performance. And that was something that we just got really energized by. And the more we talked about it, the more we realized that you know within a team, you always have relative levels of performance. You have high performers, people that are new, or maybe people that are struggling. And what every team leader wants to do is they want to clone their high performer. That's that's the term that we heard over and over and over again. You know, for us, we said, oh, what's the barrier to doing that? What's the barrier to taking what a high performer does and scaling that to the rest of the team? And we basically said, you know, someone's process, how they execute their work, the tools that they use, the tactics that they deploy, that can be scaled. But the reason that no one's scaling it is because documentation sucks. Like nobody wants to do it. It takes too much time. And once you do it, once you dedicate that time to it, it gets stale really quickly. And so what we said was, you know, how could we lower that barrier to creating documentation and make it passive? 
So it's as simple as someone actually going through that process and then documentation is created. Um, and that's really what started Tango and, and that's what Tango is today. You know, so we got kind of lucky with, with ideation was that that was, that was kind of the first building block. And then it, you know, it, it progressed nicely from there. So we just saw a tremendous opportunity for so many different types of teams and roles that we actually dropped out of HBS uh, to start Tango. And so raised our seed round in the fall of 2020. So, you know, two two and change years ago. And since then, it's just been a ton of awesome momentum. Let's dive into the MVP. So let's dive into that first product you built, the first version of the product you built. How long did it take to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We were really cobbling something together. So this was, this was actually for our seed financing. We wanted to pull together a prototype just to show that it could be done. And I think that that was something that we didn't, you know, we started off on the idea thinking this has got to be possible. You know, we, we've got to be able to do it. But then it was, you know, the matter of really saying, okay, can we do it <laughs> with limited resources? The MVP in the earliest phases for us was actually mock-ups. Like we were literally in Figma designing what the product could look like. And most of what we were designing was actually the output of the documentation, not even the experience of, hey, here's a Chrome extension, you're going through a process, here's how we, you know, we give you feedback real time that we're capturing that process, which is all stuff that we do today. It was more, how do we want to communicate this output such that the person on the other end can consume it in a way that's higher likelihood to retain the information, higher likelihood to engage with Tango, so those are the mock-ups we would go to department leads or heads and say, "Hey, how does this how does this look to you? Like do you do you know what this is when we show it to you?" And so, you know, that was the earliest earliest MVP and then, you know, just to get something animated, we started using proto.io to just have like a prototype that visually looked like it was working. Very 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 bare bones, which I'm glad we did it that way, you know, and and didn't invest so much time and resources into making sure we had something that was fully scalable. With any MVP, you know, whether it's, you know, Figma mockups or, you know, you mentioned doing an animated version to kind of really feel what the product looks like, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs around what you're going to design up front, like or what you're going to show. Tell me about those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and specifically I'm curious about, you know, how you coped with them. It's, it is trade-offs, but it, I, I don't think we necessarily viewed it as much about trade-offs. But what we said was, what is the core thing that we need to be exceptional at? You know, there's a lot of, you know, bells and whistles that are tried and true and so many products have built. And that experience probably needs to be there because it's familiar for users. But, you know, are we going to be the best at notifications? No. We'll just copy what somebody great has done and put that into our product. Do we need to, to be the best at Chrome extension interfaces? Probably not. That's already been done. But then when it came to, do we need to be the best at giving people confidence and trust that we are capturing their process as accurately as possible? And that was a resounding yes. And so, you know, when we were doing these mockups and prototypes, what we were trying to emphasize was that you know, this was going to be a, almost like a paradigm shift in the way people create documentation. 
but it's going to be infinitely more delightful than anything that they do today. That really became the hook for us where people would experience the prototype, see what we were planning to build, and they'd say, oh my gosh, like, does that actually work? <laughs> and that's really good feedback to get. So from that point, you've got you know, the mock-ups, you've got the designs, you have to push forward and start building the product. How did you go about that? How did you go about progressing from there, uh, building the initial prototype, perhaps maturing it? And I'm curious about how you built your roadmap, how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing for us to build in Tango. You're balancing a few different things when you're talking about the roadmap. It's it's your intuition, which I think sometimes entrepreneurs maybe lean a little too heavily on that, thinking that you know exactly what the product needs to look like and how people need to experience it. There's that. There's you know the customer perspective, which you always want to build for, but you need to kind of suss out, is this the persona that we want to build for? Is it just the volume of feedback from customers? Probably not. You want to cut it a few different ways. And so... What we did is, you know, in setting our roadmap, we focused on, you know, a, a very simple equation, which was really, you know, for, for folks out there who've heard of it, you know, the DVF framework. So desirability, viability, you know, all over feasibility. So it's a, you know, it's a fraction. The whole idea there is how do we focus on the things that have the highest desirability and viability, but the lowest, you know, or, or maybe the easiest level of feasibility. That allowed us to, to really focus on what was going to be quick wins, things that were gonna provide a lot of value but wouldn't require a ton of investment. So desirability was really, what were we hearing from customers? What did they want in that experience? Viability was, you know, does this unlock a, like a revenue lever or a customer lever that would be beneficial to building a business? And then feasibility was really, What's the engineering investment? And so for us, you know, we were pretty ruthless about each of those parts of that equation and making sure we were working on the stuff that had the highest ROI. Okay, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? You mentioned your 30, 40 people, I believe, around that range right now. How did how did you build your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? This is the hardest part about building a company. Not that it's, you know, you're going to make a ton of mistakes, but it is the piece that I've definitely invested the most, most of my time in. You know, I, I would say my co-founders would probably say the same thing because there, there's some element, which is, okay, what's the sequence of hires that we need to make early on. It's very obvious that you need to hire engineers when you're building software, right? You need to build something that people can use. Us as a founding team, we could absorb, you know, product and, and the other sort of business functions. And so you can, you can start there, but then the next order of questions is what do we want, you know, our culture to look like as a team? What types of people do we want to attract? And that was something that I'm really grateful to have Brian and Dan for because we all immediately kind of got to that place where we said, oh, this is this is going to be the most important part. Like, you know, competent people exist, but how do we make sure that it's, it reflects what we want to build? So we spent a ton of time building out our core values, interview questions to test on those core values, our interview process, you know, references. 
just to make sure that, you know, when we were bringing somebody on, we were helping build the foundation for what this team would become. You know, I think in the early days, every every incremental hire sets that foundation. I mean, some people say it's up to your 10th employee, then that's your culture. And so we had that in the back of our heads when we were building the team. And, and so a lot of what we screened on was like, yes, are you are you good at what you do? But, you know, are you fitting this this culture that we want to build? Ken, let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? I would say this would be the first, you know, technological build, not the design build, but the the next step. Was it built to scale efficiently from day one, or is this something you're finding as you grow? So I'm thinking about this kind of in two parts. So scalability is, you know, there's one piece, which is, can you absorb the usage at scale? Can you handle it? But there's another element of scalability, which is, you know, is this a frictionless enough experience that it will be quick to scale? You know, you can try to scale and say, oh, you know, our our systems are going to be reliable for this number of users. But if there's no path to getting to that number of users, it doesn't doesn't really even matter. You know, for us, I think we focused on both. We had a an early backend engineer hire who held a belief that we needed to build from scale, build for scale from day one on the back end, and that benefited us a ton. We very rarely have or had outages, um, you know, because of because of his leadership, which was awesome. But then the other side of scalability for us was really about how do we how do we help people see that time to value as quickly as possible. And so we still measure this today. We measure from the point of account creation to the first piece of Tango documentation that you create. That we define as our aha moment. And right now that's at five minutes for our user base. And we're always trying to get that down because if you can see the value, that's when you start sharing it with other people. That's when you start re-engaging with the product. That's when maybe you, you know, become a paid user of Tango. And so those two pieces of scalability, we, we thought about from the beginning and, you know, that time to value piece, it was also really important that we be a Chrome extension, you know, a layer on top of all these other tools. We didn't want to create this huge behavioral shift. Hey, here's another app. We're helping you document all the apps and tools that you use. It was almost like hypocritical. So we said, let's be a Chrome extension. There's a built-in method of distribution. We can capture everything that exists in the Chrome browser to create the documentation, um, and it'll be less friction for the end user. So scalability is has probably been the story from you know day one. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of, Ken? Probably the team. You know, I, I mean, I even get uncomfortable when, uh, and I know this wasn't your intent, but when you say like, "Oh, what, what you built," like I. I I, I play a role, but it, everything that we've done has been because of the team. When it comes to work, and I, and I felt this earlier in my career at Uber, being you know mission driven is important. Like I I joined Uber because I believed that within cities there had to be an easier way to mobilize and and get around and provide access to different neighborhoods. I mean that was very empowering, but I never felt super value aligned internally with the company. Because as most people know, the, the culture there was tough and you know that's well that's well documented. 
And so, you know, you kind of have to have both of those components. And, you know, what's always so energizing for me is like looking at the Tango team and seeing, yes, here is a group that's mission aligned towards what Tango is trying to do, which is help people be their best at work. But here's also a group that's value aligned. You know, we, we value similar things. We treat people in ways that we want to be treated. You know, we're ambitious, but, you know, ego gets checked at the door. Those are the things that makes, you know, working every day extremely rewarding. So that, that's, that's definitely the piece that I'm proudest of. Okay, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. There's been a ton, so we could we could go on, you know, for for a while here. You know, I, I like to look at mistakes also as, hey, we tried something and got feedback that it didn't work, and that's getting us closer to what's working. We talk about it a lot internally. You know, I think you can sit on something and try to make sure it's perfect, but you're losing out on the feedback that you could get by just, you know, putting something out there that's 80% done. So we try to make a lot of mistakes. I think one mistake that, or, you know, learning opportunity that, that we had was definitely around our desktop application. So we were pretty staunch defenders of, we are going to be a Chrome extension or bust, Chrome extension or bust. And that was mainly because when we were doing surveys and doing research, 80% of, call it, workflow activity was happening in the browser. I mean, most applications have a browser component now. We could capture a lot of those tasks and create that documentation in the browser. But eventually what we heard from users was, that's great, but a core element of my process exists outside the browser. So, you know, I can capture everything but that. And so my workflows are are broken. You know, we kind of rested on that for a while. It took us almost a year to come around and say, you know what, we actually need to have a desktop application, something that can capture both in the browser and outside the browser. And from the moment that we did that, you know, that's when we started seeing higher engagement, higher paid conversion. And so we kind of bit our tongues on that one. You know, I still believe fully in the power of distribution of the Chrome store, but having a desktop app was absolutely very much needed and and we ignored that for a while that's also good tying back to something else i talked about it's don't let data completely rule a lot of your decision making you know use those quantitative signals to then dive deeper and and really understand the the qualitative aspect so so what does the future look like for tango the product and for your team the product, you know, what I've talked a lot about and, and what the product is today is is really helping creators of documentation save time. Uh, and there's there's a ton of value in that. In fact, you know, when we surveyed our user base, people basically said, oh, yeah, I save three plus hours a week using Tango. That was a majority of our users said that. And so there's a lot of real tangible value in that. But when we think about documentation, usually what you're doing is you're not necessarily documenting it for yourself. You're documenting it for someone else to consume. And so in 2023, you know, we're going to continue to emphasize the creator experience, but we're going to start building it for the consumer of knowledge, the consumer of process, the person who's on the receiving end of that tango that needs to then replicate the task or process, because that's a critical piece. Um, you know, when we talk to a lot of people, they say, oh, yeah, you know, we've got a team of 60. There's probably five people that are 
tasked with creating documentation, they're the high performers. They're the people that I want to scale. Then there's 55 people that are consuming and trying to replicate. And so that's a, that's a much bigger market. And it's not purely motivated by that, but it's more so that we've, you know, we've come to this realization that documentation excuse the pun I'm about to make. It's, it's really is like a, it takes two to tango. I see what you did there. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of how we named the company. So like we liked the name tango because there was an implied partnership. You know, we knew we were building this for people to help each other, but it also like tango is a dance. It's a series of steps. What we're creating is step-by-step how-to guides automatically. So there's, there's a lot of like puns baked in there. Let's switch to you, Ken. Who influences the way that you work? You name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I, I love the book and it's, this is not a, uh, a unique take by any means, but I love the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight detailing his journey in, in building Nike. And, you know, that's not to say that Phil Knight is like the perfect person. In the early days when he talks about Nike, I think what's what's really special is how much he emphasizes the role of the team and how much he emphasizes just trying stuff, how much he emphasizes like, you know, sort of taking ideas from other people and bringing that to a, to a new market. My co-founder Brian talks a lot about, and it sounds really provocative when you say it, but this ideology of like great artists steal. That slogan is meant to be provocative, but other people say it in different ways, you know, stand on the shoulder of giants. Like, see what's come before you and do that. And I think that's had a really powerful influence, not just on me, but the Tango team broadly. You know, I I come back to that question in the MVP where we said, okay, what do we need to be excellent at? Like, what do we need to be exceptional at? Because it's new and it's different and it's delightful. For all the stuff that we don't need to be exceptional at, there's a playbook out there. And so let's, you know, let's not waste our creative energy on that. Let's, Let's focus our creative energy on what we need to be exceptional at. So those are things that I took away from from reading Shoe Dog. And as a as someone who's very into sports, Nike has played a huge role in my life and uh, can't help but admire what, what they've built. Okay, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? In my career... I probably would have, you know, done more, you know, experimentation. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it now as if I've held these views my, my whole life, but I knew I wanted to be a founder from my experience at Uber because, because that was so energizing. And, and the way the company was run was very intrapreneurial, where there were opportunities abound and you were supported internally to go pursue those opportunities. And, you know, but I thought like, oh, I really want to be a founder, but I'm, I'm so hesitant to make that leap because founding is, you you have to do everything. And so I have to accumulate all these experiences before I can go do that. When in reality, like, you know, you put yourself in situations where you're uncomfortable or you're lacking expertise, you know, that's where you really grow. I think I would have made the leap a little earlier. You know, I felt, I felt I needed to almost like reinforce all of these, you know, skill sets and functional areas. And in a lot of ways, like that's why I went to business school too. And and that ended up working out because I met my co-founders, but I was very much hedging against a future as a founder where I maybe wouldn't know exactly what I was doing. That's what you're doing all the time. 
like the ability to be curious and figure things out is so critical. So I probably would have taken more leaps. I probably would have put myself in more uncomfortable roles. I stayed in data science and analytics at Uber for a long time, but I was very curious about other functions, but I was like, ah, I'm not, I'm not qualified to do that. Or, you know, what perspective could I possibly bring? That's probably what I would have, would have done differently is just, um, tested myself a little bit more. Okay. Last question, Ken. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Yeah, well, I want to see the product, but <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest thing is like, and this comes back to what we were just talking about, you know, admitting what you don't know. I think as entrepreneurs, you you have to toe this fine line all the time of, of being curious, but having conviction. You have to have conviction in investor meetings. You have to have conviction in front of your team, you know, from a leadership standpoint. And so sometimes people skew too far in that direction. But what also can help with leadership is like, if you are vulnerable, you say, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna ask a dumb question here because I don't know anything about this. That can be really powerful, not just to show vulnerability, but also to reinforce a culture for your team of like, we don't all know what we're doing. We just need to figure it out and, you know, pull up, draw on people's experiences. That's why you put a team together. That I think is the biggest thing is like, make room for that curiosity and, and check that conviction sometimes at the door. That's fantastic. Well, Ken, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Tango. Thanks, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.